infinite mystery, a legend was born. The story of a warrior. The woman he loved. A daring outlaw. And a princess destined to become a warrior. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Uh, not so bad, John. How are you? I'm doing good as well. Uh, today, we'll be talking about none other than Crouching Tiger, Hidden, Drag- Hidden Dragon, Ang Lee's turn of the century or turn of the millennium sensation that surprised everyone by its massive success. But uh, before that, we'll uh, do our usual segment where we speak of uh, our previous couple weeks. So Jason, how, uh, how's, been, how's your week been? What have you been watching or reading or consuming? So uh, I'm still doing Osaka Asian Film Festival things. And um, I had uh, three reviews published. Um, two for Kahori Higashi Films, um, The Residents and Melting Sounds both of which are on my blog, and a review on V Cinema for Kasho Izuka's Angry Son. And I also interviewed the director, and that's also on V Cinema. So um, I had to rewatch those films just to uh, nail down the reviews and uh, the interviews. And uh, in terms of non-Saka Asian Film Festival films, um, I watched Seven, The Big Lebowski, Rome, Open City, and uh, Belle de Jour, and each of those were first-time watches for me, including the Big Lebowski. Yeah, that was a first-time watch. Oh, that's, um, that's that's a hilarious movie. Yeah, it's kind of like uh, Farewell, My Lovely, but with a beach bum instead of a private eye. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it takes a lot from those um, uh, '40s uh, detective movies. What's the uh, what's the author called? I'm forgetting. Oh, is it Dashiell Hammett's? No, no. That the, he didn't have a reputation for making hard to follow plots. It it was um I'm blank. It's a famous guy, Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. Okay. Raymond Chandler. So he was uh, you know he was known for mo- a lot of his novels were fix ups, which is a tradition uh, in the uh, particular genre fiction of the fifties, where you take previously published short stories and you kind of put them together and try to make a coherent story. Uh, and he was sort of like notorious for doing that in a way that captured 
tone and character very well, but the plots didn't always interweave that great. So it uh, it uh, ended up being sort of or very often sort of a confusing mess of just events happening without uh, necessarily a causal relationship between them. Yeah. And yeah, I've seen um, all different versions of Farewell, My Lovely, the 1944 version and the 1975 version with Robert Mitchum. And uh, the Big Lebowski seemed to echo that uh, particular story. Yes. And like as you describe it, it's just like a car crash of different plots coming together. And what really makes the film shine is like you've got, uh, oh, what's the lead actor's name? Uh, Jeff Bridges. Jeff Bridges. Yeah, Jeff Bridges. Just fantastic as the dude. Uh, and also, Rome Open City is that uh, Rosalini? Yeah, Rosalini. It's been a while. I've, I I remember I've I've seen the whole trilogy. The I forget the other two, but there's a trilogy and Ro- Rome Open City. I think it's the last of the trilogy. Maybe is it, is it like um, Berlin Year Zero or something? Like yes, that? that's that's another one. I forget. It's 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 been a long time. Uh, but yeah, those are also pretty good movies, and it's sort of uh, often considered as like the start of Italian neorealism or something like that. Yeah, you can see that like um, he scrounged film stock uh, because like the quality of the film stock actually changes uh, during the movie, and he's using sort of bombed out locations and natural lighting. Yes, yes, of course. So yeah, uh, Rome Open City is just really great sort of um, overview of like this community and this, this small community and their interactions with like fascists and the Nazis and um, some really uh, even though it's filmed in the like nineteen forties um, and uh, uh, like the the brutality that's shown is really striking and um, horrifying. All right, yeah, and uh, yeah. Other than that. Uh, I watched the uh, first three episodes of Cowboy Bebop, a Netflix adaptation. I think that's how many I watched as well. I think I made it to three and then I stopped. How, what did you think? Um, it's not as bad as I had feared. Um, it, I've, I really like chemistry between John Cho and Mustafa Shakir as Spike Spiegel and um, Jack Black. I think they've got really great uh chemistry between them like the jokes that fly around and um, there's a real sense of camaraderie um the hand-to-hand fights are uh, entertaining to watch the gunplay is okay um the writing is so-so like Fei Wong's character introduction was just like Daniela Pineda who plays Fei. um she uh Fei Wong no that's Fei Valentine I think <laughs> the actress Fei yeah Wong. yeah I was I was uh, the- I, I was drawing a blank for a second. Hey, Fei Wong. Shunking <laughs> <Shunkai> Express. <laughs> yeah. Well, she but, might have had a role in it for all we know, for all I know, because I didn't, I didn't look up the entire cast for later episodes. Maybe you saw something I didn't. Yeah, uh, it's Ed. Ed um, has the surname Wong, I think. But um, uh, okay. Daniel Pineda's Fei Valentine, she has a lot of charisma, but uh, her dialogue is just terrible. Um, it's just like cliche girl boss stuff. But one thing I really... Uh, I'm feeling is the lack of atmosphere uh, for the planets that they visit. It's kind of like there's no scene setting. It's just we'll change the color filter. So we're on. There's a yellow tint. Okay, we're on Europa. And uh, yeah, it's like the sh- the actual anime really does a good job of you're in space, you're visiting different planets, and each planet has a different sort of um, cultural affinity to it. Um, so you have a real sense of place uh, that the characters are in. Which uh, Netflix cowboy people can't do, probably due to budgetary restrictions. 
I mean, I don't think it was cheap, so I don't know that they necessarily have that excuse. Although I, I, I'm just speculating here. I'm don't, I don't want to pretend like I looked things up and or anything like that. Yeah, like scene settings in terms of like how how is this colony terraformed? Because when you look at like uh, Venus, for example, in the anime, you have like flying islands, and that's a great background detail. Flying islands with like um these uh trees and flowers that have special blooms and it's kind of like you don't get that much detail it's just you're in a downtown area and it could be a downtown area in any place in the netflix version what did you think of uh, their uh, uh their choices on uh, vicious uh terrible terrible <laughs> that's i think a lot of people i think that that's a big complaint it was obvious it wasn't you don't even have to be a critic to kind of to sort of dislike that part of the show yeah he comes off as a bumbling idiot rather than a vicious killer or a nihilist. Yeah, absolutely. Which is more terrifying. Yeah, well, anyway, I mean, there's uh, enough said about that, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm invested in watching the rest of the series. It's not a disaster, and I think there's a lot of potential for it to develop. Well, that's, I think that's the thing. That's the thing that I kind of, it's, it's not terrible by any means. It's just too average, in my opinion. Yeah. That's, that was the, the thing that bothered me. There's just, you know, if it's almost like, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but I almost wish it was bad because then I could just, you know, hate watch it. But <laughs> not not really, but I'm just trying to exaggerate here. But that almost have been better, but it's so average that it's just like, eh, okay, yeah, I get like, they didn't, they didn't mess it up. But they also <laughs> didn't really like it's, it's in many ways, it, I feel like it's too similar to the anime. In, in, in places where it shouldn't be in similar to an anime, and they change things in places where they perhaps should have stuck to the anime a little closer. Mm. So, I don't know. It's, it's, I mean, it's, I think it's just, I think for people, like, I, there's no doubt in my mind that the people behind, uh, behind this enjoy the anime and like it, but I think that shows that that is, it by itself is not enough to, to actually, you know, you're just kind of, you know, trying to emulate your heroes, but they, your heroes became your heroes because they sort of dared to do something different. Yeah, and I that that the 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 Netflix or just doesn't do that. It feels like it doesn't even attempt to do that. It's just you know it it, it makes a few cool choices. There are uh, good things about the show that I can't deny, but it's just more of the same and not that interesting. Yeah, it's just rehashing um, things that we've already seen, and yeah. uh, like Teddy Bomber, like uh, the character in the anime. Was such a cool comic character, and um, he's being reduced for the live action. But um, yeah, I'm interested in seeing where the rest of it goes. And uh, by the time that we record the next episode, I'll have a uh, a view of the entire series. All right. And uh, that's been my media consumption. How about you? Uh, well, I mean, it's it's it hasn't been a lot in terms of movies and uh, and entertainment. But I did. This was sort of a big week or a big couple of weeks for European football. You know, uh -oh, all the, kickball, uh, kickball. Yeah, well, yeah, uh, in a way. Uh, but you know, all the leagues kind of finished, and like the as of the time of recording, the the Champions League final was yesterday. Uh, so I watched that, but it was you know it was a fun week. It's nice to see all the uh, all the the ending. There was some you know final match, final day drama that happened in a couple of places, and that was entertaining. I know you don't follow, but you know the. Uh, I don't. I don't know if if Wales has their own league or if they if they are part of the Premier League. Um, part of the Premier League. Okay. What what are the Welsh the Welsh teams that are that are uh, of note that I might have know? I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not great at British geography. 
so um Cardiff City. Okay. And uh I think they're in the they are in the Premier League or they were in the Premier League. I think League. I think they might be in the in the championship. Okay, and there's Swansea. Okay, I think I think they are in the Premier League. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah. And then there's Newport County and um Wrexham. And okay. uh, Wrexham were in like the FA Cup semifinals or finals, I think. Um Ryan Reynolds owns a stage yes, in Wrexham. Yes, 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 yes. No, but I mean the main the main thing was between Liverpool and Manchester City. And that was played in Paris, right? Oh no, that so that I'm talking about the Premier League now. So the oh, okay. UEFA the UEFA Champions League was between Liverpool and Real Madrid, and Liverpool lost lost both, uh, basically. Oh. I don't I don't know where Liverpool is if it's close to Wales or if it's a is it it's not in London, is it? No, 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 it's in the north, um, close okay. to Wales and Ireland. Okay, all right, all right. Uh, yeah, it's because I know the Scotland has its own league. Yeah, but I I, I guess Wales is not, doesn't. Uh, all all right, all right. Uh, so other than that, I finished watching. I had just started last time I mentioned, but I finished watching the flight attendant, the the second season of the flight attendant, which I mentioned. And it's uh, needless. I mean, just a long story short, it was not as good as the first season. And I think sort of the first season was almost entirely style over substance. And I think I mentioned this, but the substance was good enough that you could focus and appreciate the style. The second season was more of the same style over substance, but now the substance wasn't as good. So you kind of, the plot was a bit meandering a bit all over the place. So it just wasn't enjoyable, but it wasn't too terrible either. And uh, I also started watching the second, the third season of Barry, another HBO show with, um, uh, one of the SNL guys, I forget. Uh, I forget. Bill Hader. Bill Hader. Uh, but this is, you know, nothing like anything else that Bill Hader has done. This is a very dark show. It's a dark comedy, so there is some comedy in it. But it is, otherwise, it is so dark and, and cynical. Uh, but it's also very good, I think. So this, the, the third season was just released, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of watching that. Uh, and I'm also watching a, an Australian TV show called Kath and Kim. I don't know if you've heard, if you've heard about it, but it's no. it's a it's a it's a sitcom. It, I think it should be available on Netflix at least here in the U.S. I don't know, but I, I recommend it. It's so funny. Okay, and it is by uh, these two female comedians who were kind of known for sketch comedy shows, so kind of like the Australian version of SNL, essentially, or SNL like shows, and they kind of created this show that lasts, I think, four seasons. Uh, and it's it's really funny. I recommend it. Hmm. Uh, but I think that's it. That's it for me. That's it for my media consumption. It was a light week, uh, but, uh, you know, still pretty fun. Okay. So, Jason, why don't you tell us what's uh, what's been in the news this week? And I think I know what's been in the news because there's one thing that's kind of dominated the last couple, well, the last week more so in terms of, uh, of uh, big films being shown and winning awards. So, yeah, if you are a, a film nerd, um, your eyes have been glued to one event and uh, one event only uh, in the film world, and that's the Cannes Film Festival. And yesterday, the awards were handed out to films, um, and we had a number of Asian winners. So um, in the lead up to the uh, awards, it was announced that a special prize called the... Uh, Ecumenical Jury Award for Best Film was given to Hirokazu Koreeda's Broker. And um, that's what, uh, an award given by sort of uh, uh, various Christian denominations 
uh, to a film that uh, matches uh, their teachings. And That's a strange choice. I don't know. I guess I haven't seen Broker, so I don't know. Yeah, you know, you've got Protestant, Catholic, and uh, you know, best touches the spiritual dimensions of our existence. So um, Broker must have something life affirming to it. Well, I guess he he does kind of make movies about families and families coming together. So maybe there's something, something and, there. Yeah, the inciting incident is a mother leaving a baby at the church's baby box. So I, I see, I see. That's uh, well within their purview. Um, just that I guess it makes sense that they didn't give that prize to Park Chan Wook's uh, decision thir- to leave. Well, not not that. I'm, I'm going a little further back. Uh, thirst. Oh yeah, the Catholic priest to vampire. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> that won the jury prize, but it's just it didn't win the ecumenical jury prize. So I kind of I, I I mentioned it because I thought it did, but then I kind of. Went back and said, oh, no, wait, he just won the jury prize. But anyway, please go on. Yeah, priest turning vampire is a taboo subject of the Catholic Church. So uh, the camera door for special mention went to Plan 75 by Chi Hayakawa. And um, the Best Actor Award... And just to clarify, camera door is sort of like a cinematography award, right? Mm, it's a special mention for cinematography, yeah. Okay. And um, uh, Best Actor went to Song Kang-ho for Broker. And that's going to be released in the US by Neon. And going into the festival, Neon announced that uh, they had secured the rights. And then Best Director went to Park Chan-wook for a decision to leave. And um, Movie have announced that they're going to release it in various territories, including the UK and I think the US. Streaming or theatrical? Uh, no mention yet, just that it's a movie release. Okay. And um, The Palm Door went to... Uh, Ruben Oslin's Triangle of Sadness and um, was he previously won uh, was it a palm door for The Square? I don't know if it was I know that that was the big movie that he kind of became internationally known for. I don't remember, I don't think that won the palm door. Uh, I'm sure he's won it twice. I am looking it up at this moment. Oh, you're right it did. The Square won the palm door. I haven't seen that movie. I haven't seen it either, but it's like a satire of the art world. Yeah, I know it stars Elizabeth Elizabeth Moss, whom I don't like very much as an actress, but but I do know that this is kind of like a big movie for for him. But I didn't realize he won the Palme d'Or. Mm. Oh, he also did Force Majeure. Yes, I yes, he said uh, that was, but that was before I think. Yeah. Okay, but yeah, so th- so uh, this one was, you know, I think we've talked in private, and I I. I kind of I haven't seen any of these movies, but so I was kind of I was kind of had my prediction, my personal prediction, my own head, purely based on the buzz that uh, that I had just read about or seen on Twitter and whatnot, and I didn't think that either Broker nor nor Decision to Leave would would win the Palme d'Or. I I was a bit surprised that Park Chan Wook won Best Director because I hadn't heard sort of that much about it. So that just goes to show you that this is not a not a very accurate way of determining, but I, Triangle of Sadness was kind of one of the highly sort of spoken about movies. Another one was uh, uh, Chris Mungu's RMN, so the Romanian movie, but that didn't <clears> win anything. So again, another reason not to trust Buzz that much, but it was kind of spoken. I, there was a, several publications that's kind of mentioned it as a potential favorite or something like that. Yeah, he's won awards for, was it, four months, three weeks? 
two days, something like that, the abortion drama. 2007, and I th- that was also the Palm Door, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, just to go back to the camera door, um, just had a quick look uh, on Google, and um, it's an award for Best First Feature Film oh, presented okay. in one of the Cannes selections. So it's a special mention. I see. So the very misleading title on behalf of the Cannes committee, uh, because, you know, you see camera, you think, okay, that's got to do some cinematography. Hmm. Of course, it's, uh, it's my fault for guessing, but it was, I think, I, I will insist that it was a reasonable guess. <laughs> and they made, they messed it up by naming the award wrongly, but what do I know? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So yeah, that's, I, I, I think that, that I, I'm pretty sure I, I read that before and just forgot about it. Uh, but mm. okay. So that's, and then this is a, an actress, right? Uh, who, she, Hayakawa? Yeah. yeah. Um, so she directed the segment of 10 Years Japan, which was produced by Hirokazu Koreeda. And, uh, yeah, this is, I think this is her first feature film. But is she, was she sort of already known as an actress in Japan or, or, or is it just a beginning, a, a, a new director? I think this is a new director. I don't okay. think she's an actress. I thought, okay, but perhaps I'm wrong. I thought she was, oh no, there, no, there was another, no, the, what was the other film in Cannes that uh, was by an actor, that was directed by an actor? Uh, this year or last year? This year, this year. Ah, uh, directed by an actor. Uh, the, I'm not the guy, sure. I think the guy, the guy that was in uh, Squid Game. Oh, Hunt. The Hunt. Okay, so that's 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 his directorial debut. Yeah, midnight screening and um, reviews for like great action sequences. Story needed some work. Yeah. So anyway, but that that's what I was confusing with because that was an actor turned first time director, uh, and sort of I was confusing with uh, Plan Seventy Five. But no. Yeah, Plan 75 is very topical, what to do with elderly people, and there's a government uh, euthanasia program. And this 75-year-old woman, uh, or this elderly woman, um, has to make a choice whether she uh, has herself euthanized or not. It's a very sort of um, it's a tough subject matter. All right, all right. Okay, but I think that's, uh, that's, that's it for our news. Of course, you know, congratulations to the winners. Uh, in this year's festival. Hopefully we'll get to see some of them uh, not too long from now, maybe even review some of them. Uh, But after this, we can move straight into our uh, main uh, topic of discussion. And we, of course, continue our theme of big award winners. And oh boy, do we have a big award winner this week. And that is uh, maybe not as big as last week, but still pretty big. And that is Ang-, Ang Lee's internationally produced Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, released in the year 2000, a movie that became a massive suspe- success, perhaps to a lot of people's surprise at the time. So Jason, as usual, why don't you tell us uh, what did this movie win, win and uh, what it is about? So, okay, uh, long-winded intro, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, 2000 Wuxia, film directed by Ang Lee based on the Chinese novel of the same name. It's a five-novel series, and the film was mostly adapted from the fourth book in the series. And the author is Wang Danlu. Wang Dulu, I should say. Um, the film was an international co-production made with a budget of $17 million and shot entirely in China. We have a cast of ethnic Chinese uh, drawn from across the diaspora, all of whom are speaking Mandarin. And it became a surprise international success, grossing $213.5 million worldwide. Became the highest grossing foreign language film in the United States for $120 million, $128 million, and was the film, uh, first foreign language film 
to break the $100 million mark in the US. And it won a whole plethora of awards everywhere except in China. And um, some of the awards it won include um, the BAFTAs, the David Lean Award for Best Director. It also won Best Score, Best Costume Design, and Best Film in a Foreign Language. At the Golden Globes, it won Best Foreign Film and Best Director. At the 2001 Academy Awards, it had 10 nominations, uh, the most of any foreign language film at that time. But it only received awards for Best Cinematography, Best Music, Best Art Design, and Best Foreign Language Film. At the Golden Horse Awards uh, in Taiwan... Uh, do you happen to remember what country it it went under? Was it Taiwan? Was it Hong Kong? Or was it China? I think it was Taiwan. Taiwan. That, that would make sense. Okay. All right. Please go on. And um, at the Golden Horse Award, it won Best Feature Film, Best Film Editing, uh, Best Action Direction, Best Film Score, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound Effects. At the Hong Kong Academy Awards, it won Best Director, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, Best Action Choreography, Best Sound Design, Best Original Film Score, Best Original Film Song. and. Uh, at the Asian Film Critics Association Award, it won Best Director, Best Picture, Best Supporting Actress. And uh, so the story takes place in the 19th century during the days of the Qing Dynasty in China. We follow Wuxia expert Li Mubai, who's beginning preparations to retire in order to spend the rest of his life with the widowed warrior Yu Xu Lian. His plans are put on hold when his sword, Green Destiny, is stolen in Peking which is modern-day Beijing. Li Mubai and Yu Shulian track the theft to Jen, the daughter of an aristocrat and the disciple of Jade Fox, the person who killed Li Mubai's master. Unbeknownst to all of those characters, Jen has an innate talent for martial arts and a lover from the western deserts of Xinjiang, and all will pursue her in order to secure both Green Destiny and her skills. All right, so yeah, that is quite a list of accolades and that's just you know only a few i'm sure there are many others that this movie accumulated over the years and it i i can i think say just by listening to other discussions reading articles about it that the, i think the popularity of the movie hasn't decreased since then it's kind of still you know remains steadily uh in people's minds but we'll talk about all that first i want to ask you jason how What's your history with this movie? When did you first watch it and what did you think about it? And what did you think upon rewatching it in preparation for this podcast? I think like um, I saw it uh, um, after all of its uh, Oscar wins and it was on late night. Well, it was on television, um, Channel 4. And uh, I was a teenager at the time. And um, at that point, I was already sort of um, really in love with um, modern Hong Kong action cinema, Kung Fu cinema. And I was a fan of like Jackie Chan, Samuel Hung, and um, so when I came across uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon and um, uh, Wuja movies, uh, I wasn't too impressed. I was kind of bored by the wire work and um, like the art house stylings were pretty, but they didn't grip me. And um, I think I was too young and naive to really um, get the love story and the themes. And so it's like only with like, uh, on, upon rewatch, I can appreciate those things a lot more now. And um, I'm kind of a uh, little more interested in Wuja than I used to be. and. Um, I enjoyed it watching it a second time. I enjoyed like uh the sort of verisimilitude of uh like ancient China um 
and uh, the action scenes by Yoon Woo Ping, who is like a fight choreographer in The Matrix and Iron Monkey and other classic and um, classic Hong Kong movies. Really fun to watch, full of comedy. I think one of the things I forget about Wu Zhao is that the, fil- the fights can actually be a lot of fun. And uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon does have a sense of humor. And um, like the tragic romance between um, Cherry and Fat and Michelle and Yo's characters, uh, they play uh, Li Mu Bai and Yu Shu Lian, respectively. Um, that really moved me uh, upon the second viewing. Uh, so I could appreciate it a lot more. I enjoyed it a lot more on the second viewing. How about you? Yeah, I actually, you know, very, very similar. So I watched it long after it came out. So it must have, I don't know, I, it's a few years at least. And uh, and like you, I was not interested in Wuxia. I actually still am I'm not really that much interested in Wuxia. Uh, as soon as I see people start flying around like monkeys, I I shut off. It's just not not for me. Uh, I, I appreciate a lot, maybe my martial arts to be a little bit more grounded. And I think maybe that's kind of what drove me off the movie the first time I watched it. And it's not only that, but I, there's, you know, all, I think Wuxia has a, has a, we'll talk about what exactly it means for a movie to belong to that genre. But I think all Wuxia movies have this sort of like soap opera quality to them. And I, I think that that's evident, maybe not to a great degree in Crouching Tiger, Head Dragon, but it is there. And I also, I, I think that just didn't appeal to me at all at the time. And I, I don't know why, because, I watched it the second time and I, you know, I, I loved it. Well, I enjoyed it. It's, it's, uh, it's that there are flaws, uh, in the, I think in the movie or at least things that I didn't like, I don't know that I can, uh, objectively say they're flaws, but there are, there are things that I found that I didn't enjoy the first time that I didn't enjoy now. Like I, the action scenes, I still, there was probably, probably my least favorite part of the movie, but everything else about it, I thought it was great. It was, I think, a very, very catching story. And I can, you know, at the time when I first watched it, I said, I don't understand what anybody likes about this. This is silly. And now I can, you know, even though I, I don't 100% enjoy everything about the movie, I still think it's a very fun movie. It's a very thrilling and very, uh, very gripping story uh very interesting characters very fun characters like i said it does actually have a sense of humor in it and i I do think that even the parts that i don't like like the the soap opera aspects and the the you know the the exaggerated choreography which is typical of husha i think this is toned down compared to some other husha movies that perhaps we both may have seen like um what am i thinking of uh house of the flying daggers or uh i mean that's insane uh, and uh, I don't know, Hero is another one, which is sort of like in the genre, although I think that's also perhaps a bit toned down. Uh, but yeah, I think I, the second, I think the the most recent watch of this is, it was very enjoyable, even though I sort of have, have been on the record for saying, I don't think this is a, as good of a movie as people think it is. It's actually, I think it might be as good of a movie as people think it is. Yeah, like Crouching uh, Tiger, Hidden Dragon helped popularize the wuxia genre across the world. And then you had Hero and um, House of Flying Daggers as follow-ups, and they're both are they both by Yang Jimo? I think so. I well, I know Hero is uh, Flying House of Flying Daggers. I thought that was Tui Hark, but uh, yeah, but like, I, um, I could be wrong. I have to admit, I haven't watched those two. Okay, I've I've, I've watched like um, King Who's um, Come Drink with Me and um, A Touch of Zen, and uh, like those two films. Well. Uh, Come Drink Me has a, a big sense of humor to it. And, uh, you could say that, uh, 
Crouching Tiger, a hidden dragon, is highly inspired by uh, King Hu's works. Interesting. Because, like, um, in researching this, I found out that Ang Lee was, like, uh, a huge fan, not just of Wu Jia, but of King Hu's movies in particular. And Cheng Pei Pei, who plays Jade Fox in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, um, was the lead actress in Come Drink With Me, um, one of King Hu's most famous movies. Yeah. Well, you've seen some other Hu Jia movies, because I know you've seen Stephen Chow movies. Yeah. Uh, and he parodies Hu Jia in at least several times. Uh-huh. In his, and I, I have to say, I mean, I think, I think that will betray my my opinion of Husha in general. I, I don't enjoy it very much. That's not an objective statement. That's a subjective statement. But my favorite Husha is when Stephen Chow kind of like makes fun of it. I don't think he makes fun of it in a in a way to denigrate it. I think he makes fun of it from a loving from a place of love. But it nevertheless it is most enjoyable when it when you see Stephen Chow in uh, say Shaolin soccer. Uh, when they come and when everybody comments on how people are flying around, yeah, I, I like I, I'm of similar mindset to you. Like, I like I more I prefer more grounded martial arts movies, um, more realistic uh, with stunt work, but it's bone crunching, like uh, sort of Jackie Chan's best works, and uh, or maybe something trashy like Red Wolf. Yeah, well, not to I think not to kind of downplay the 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 skill that it requires to actually do Husha movies. Because if you see, especially, and I think that's that's one thing that, you know, a director like Ang Lee, who is still, I think, an indie director at this point, right? I mean, this is his first major movie. Did he do anything so big before? Uh, he had um, a number of studio films, like there was that adaptation of Jane Austen's Sense and Sensibility. Oh, you're right, you're right. But I think that was still a relatively small budget movie. It was studio, but I think it's relatively small. Yeah, Sense and Sensibility, um, The Ice Storm, and Ride with the Devil, which is like a sweeping Civil War epic. So you you can see like um, his from his filmography, he's building up to making Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which is like his biggest budgeted movie at that point. Yes, uh, yeah, so uh, absolutely, and and just to going back to the point that I was making is that there is quite skill, a lot of skill involved in both directing. Sort of this type of choreography and the, the actual stunt work required to to sort of like show, sort of to show the wire work and act out the 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 you know the the action scenes in 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 a way that they do. Yeah, there's a, a remarkable clarity to the fight choreography, so you can see how like the the blows and the counter blows and how characters are dodging, and it's quite rhythmic as well. And uh, I I would be interesting to like. Uh, actually buy a dvd and uh get a feature at which shows how ang lee and yu wu ping worked on set because this was ang lee's first action movie up until this point he's directing dramas yes exactly uh yeah so that's what i'm saying that's what i'm saying this is is, is quite a big step for him and uh i don't know uh, just to go back to the cast uh, a little bit i don't know if you notice there was uh uh the old man uh the guy that played um Sir Tay. Sir Tay, yes, Sir Tay. I don't know if you recognize. He's also appeared in in the in the Father Knows Best trilogy of uh, of uh, Ang Lee. Hmm. Yeah, which of which we've covered: Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, and the Wedding Banquet. The Wedding Banquet, and another one which I kind of thought uh, a little bit more interesting: the person, the young man who plays Law or Dark Cloud. Oh, Happy Together. Happy Together. Yes, so I, I kind of. Uh, so sort of, I can't believe I recognize him because it does look kind of different. But if you pay attention, is uh, 
uh, you can definitely see that he is there. He's the young man that he that Tony Long's character meets at the end of Happy Together. Yeah, in um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, he's from Xinjiang and a Turkic horseman. Yes, and he's sort of like the, uh, since you mentioned it, he's the love interest of Zhi uh, Yang. Oh, wait, uh, Zhang Zi, sorry. Uh, yeah, Jen, the character of Jen. Jen's, she, she's Jen's love. And, and do you think she's the main character of the movie, or do you think Michelle Yeoh is the main character, or do you think uh, uh, Chow Fat is the main character of the movie? <laughs> Um, I think uh, audience members are going to uh, take away uh, different things from this. So um, if you're young and impetuous, you'll love Xi Zhang's Jen. And if you're older, you'll you'll probably get more out of um, the Chow Yun-Fat, um, Michelle Yeoh uh, relationship drama. At least that's what I found on my viewing. So uh, Michelle Yeoh and Chow Yun-Fat are probably the main draws for me. Uh, they would be my main characters. Yes. I think, I think the real main character is for me was Michelle Yeoh uh, mm. mainly because she seems to kind of like be the 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 driver of action for a lot of the film except for you know like a small part kind of like in the middle to end where we kind of completely forget about them and focus on uh, on Jen's uh, runway adventures and the awesome tea house fights yes 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 absolutely and I think that's kind of another perhaps maybe a slight weakness of the film it seems to it seems to meander a little bit with the plot i don't know if you if you kind of thought the same thing where we kind of for the first half it seems to be all about uh this uh villain jade fox uh but then it kind of it kind of stops being about her and being about sort of this uh the young sort of this young woman running away from home and not wanting to marry uh, and then he co- sort of Jade Fox sort of appears in the end, and she becomes the main villain again. Uh, so I thought I thought the structure perhaps they could have kind of tied it a bit together, but I think if you are kind of interested more in the in the Jen character, I can see how sort of the 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 writers and the directors were tempted to kind of keep the focus on her and kind of let go of Jade Fox for like a whole chunk of the film. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's playing um, around, it's weaving in and out of, like, the typical wuja themes of um, justice, loyalty, and um, betrayal, and uh, courage, and so forth. So, uh, like, the two the two central couples and Jade Fox, uh, like, dancing in and out of the narrative. And, um, like, the younger couple, um, Jen and Dark Cloud, uh, like they help sort of reinforce the tragic romance of um Li Mubai and Yu Shu Lian's um relationship, uh, which meant that when the ending came, which just like I was crying more for them than I was for like uh, what was, whatever happened to Jen. So let's. So what happened to Jen? Let's sort of. It seems to me that that's another thing that I'm not. This is not a criticism. This is more of me trying to understand sort of what the what the film is trying to tell us, but. You know, where there's the whole parable of the mountain, right? He tells her a story that if you jump from that mountain, your wish will come true, and that's what ends up happening in the end. But that happens after uh, Cho Yun Fat's character has died, right? Yeah, she's too late at getting the poison, and you can see that they have that sort of very brief but very sort of meaningful interaction with Michelle Yeoh's character, which is, "I forgive you. Now go back and really kind of live the kind of life." that I could not because of so many, you know, social, socially imposed 
uh, restrictions. Restrictions, right? Uh, I couldn't. So go and do that. But she, and then I found it interesting that she doesn't do that. She kind of seems to be. It's there's almost this fatalistic view, and I didn't understand where is that coming from. Yeah, it's an ambiguous ending. So she either performs a death-defying leap of faith, um, and she makes a wish, and the wish is either um, to live in the desert with dark clouds. Um, her lover from the West, or um, she kills herself to atone for what she has done. The, so the first one, so if it's a wish, much the wish has already been granted, right? So Michelle Yeoh told her, go and they can go to the desert if they want to, Nothing, nobody's stopping them. But uh, but was the, the killing herself to atone, I mean, I, I can see that, but it, then it kind of feels like Michelle Yeoh's act of forgiveness it feels like then it's meaningless it's wasted it's yeah. wasted that's right exactly so it's another impetuous act by a brat essentially yes i mean i, I don't know because it did feel like the, the, there's something that perhaps there's something deeper that's going on that i'm just not quite getting you know that there's something about this metaphor of of faith or of of a leap of faith that is kind of foreshadowed in the beginning that we kind of maybe are missing here that we're not it didn't feel like meaningless even though i can't find meaning in it well uh like i think you just have to accept that it's put like wuja is essentially fantasy kung fu <laughs> that's how i um, think about it and um we throughout the film we see that people with like these martial arts skills if they train hard enough if they have the sort of innate abilities they can do all sorts of things like fly across rooftops and so like it's an ambiguous ending. There's no proof that she dies. She could survive. She could fly away. So it just leaves it open ended like that with a romantic image of her um doing taking this death defyingly. Yeah. Well, I think so. So you mentioned that's Wusha. I looked. So I did. I did a bit of you know reading to see what what does Wusha exactly is. And it's of course it's it predates film, right? It's a it's a genre of Chinese literature and poetry. And it's it's it does it's. It really just is means a martial arts adventures set in a in a long time ago. Uh, so, like technically, that's all wuxia is. But I think in modern times, we've kind of to to see the wuxia genre as this sort of like exaggerated martial arts with you know heavy melodramatic elements to it, with almost uh, soap opera sort of type of emotional uh, developments. And uh, and I think sort of you know that's why. Crouching Tiger is sort of like a very, in many ways, it's a very sort of typical, typically wuxia film, where something like Iron Monkey or like Once Upon a Time in China, I don't know if you've seen those movies. Uh, Once Upon a Time in China, I've got on DVD and I did intend to watch it, but I didn't have time. Yeah. Or or like the other one, the, the 2006 uh, Jet Li film, the one where he plays like this real life martial arts professor or something that he ends it with- not Ip Man. That's that's Donnie Yen. Okay, okay. The it's called Fearless. I think the movie. Okay. And it's it plays this. Uh, it it plays the uh, this sort of uh, national this Chinese national hero. Uh, it's fairly. I, I don't know. It's fairly known. It's a fairly well known movie. Mm. And I think that's you know that's as emotional. Or as soap operish as a it's a historical drama, and that's that I think that could be interpreted as a wuxia film, but it isn't because of you know it doesn't have this sort of like exa exa exaggerated nature about it. Mm. 
and it like this almost like so like the, the genre requires almost this sort of like absurdism about it that may and my this roundabout way of saying that maybe that's what the ending uh means that's maybe the why that kind of ending is necessary it like kind of needs to end that way in order to conform with the uh with the tenets of the genre and i think maybe that's what ang lee is doing here he's not necessarily making a movie he's making a wuxia movie a wuxia movie that is very aware that it is a wuxia movie in in, in some ways but in like in other ways he's defying wuxia genre because like he doesn't start off the film with a fight he doesn't end the film with a fight either is that and is that a, a sort of like very typical in wuxia films yeah if you watch uh, sort of like come drink with me the opening minutes are like a prison convoy is ambushed and people are massacred and like the final fight is like uh two martial arts masters settling the score once and for all i see okay so that that, that i mean that sounds right yeah and so it's like, uh, you, you know, you get like something like 10 minutes, 15 minutes of scene setting and character setup before you get into the first fights in um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Did you did you think that the fight scenes in, in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, is, like I said, this is the fights were some of my least parts of the movie, my least favorite parts of the movie. They were not bad. I just I felt like the, sometimes they went a bit too long. I don't know if you got that or if you enjoyed them more than I did. No, I I thought they were fine. I I enjoyed them, um, especially like the tea house fights and um, the fight between Michelle Yeoh and Zhang Ji uh, when they first meet. Uh, as I said earlier, it's kind of like the the fighting. I found uh, very coherently shot and um, really engaging to watch them uh, use the scenery around them and um, demonstrate um, different um, weapons as well. Yeah. I mean, I can I can see that again. I, like this might be just personal preference. The the fight, the initial fight between Jen and Michelle Yeoh's character, and when when Jen is masked, uh, I, I thought I don't know that that felt a bit too long. And then there's the second fight where they kind of like when Michelle Yeoh goes through various weapons. I don't know. It just felt a little bit too long, but it, it was not that bad. It was you know there especially the second one that it had some comical elements to it. Uh, but I think the sort of the thing that borrowed it, that that kind of bothered me a little bit, not 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 a not a huge amount. And again, I'm I'm sort of repeating here the same thing that I've said previously that throughout this process, throughout these seasons, I'm gonna put these movies to to the highest possible scrutiny that I can. So I'm gonna I'm gonna look for flaws even when they're relatively minor. And the one thing that kind of bothered me here is that the action scenes did not necessarily advance the story. Like at times it did, and at times it felt like, okay, the story will pause here and that we're going to watch this fight and then we'll kind of resume the story after this fight uh, is over. And I think that's also made perhaps a, a, wushu, a, wushu, uh, a, a wuxia characteristic, sort of like an element where the, the fight is almost its own, sort of like gets to have its own focal point in the film. Yeah, um... One thing I will say is that the fights in Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon um, don't get as fantastical as uh, other Wuxia films where you suddenly have like characters shooting like fireballs or steam out of their palms. Yes, absolutely. That's why I said like when I, when I watch it now, I, I was surprised that I, I had not liked this the first time because it's not as far as Wuxia goes. It's nowhere near as exaggerated as, as Wuxia can get, especially if you look because I've seen movies from like the 70s. And the yeah. '60s, that they are way more wild. Uh, yeah, perhaps at the time where you know people were still amazed at the moving pictures. 
Yeah. Or you may get like a, a, a ninja springing from the belly of a pregnant woman and flying through a forest. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's kind of, uh, if you, again, if you watch, uh, uh, Stephen Chow's, uh, interpretations of the Monkey King, so the two, a journey to the, like the journey to the West two-parter that he did in the nineties. Mm. It's a fantastic movie, two fantastic movies. He kind of, kind of definitely kind of makes about that. That's as wild as it gets, uh, but mm. always, always played comically. Yeah. Like, um, the craziest it gets in Crouch Tiger Hidden Dragon is like, uh, running over rooftops or flying over rooftops and, um, like, uh, fighting on, uh, bamboo, um, stalks, like, uh, which is a reference to King Who's, um, uh, a touch of Zen where they have a fight in the bamboo forest, but, um, they didn't use wire work in Kung Hu's movies because they didn't have the budget for it, whereas Ang Lee did. But, um, do you think the sense that, uh, the fighting and the drama are separate in Crouch the Tiger, Hidden Dragon, because you had Ang Lee sort of directing the drama and then Yun Wu Ping being left to direct the action? A, a sort of, if not separate per se, because I do think that the, the drama leads to the action. But then the action mm. does not necessarily enhance the drama. That's my point. Like if you watch, I think obviously I think the master of action and telling stories through action is Jackie Chan. And if you see a Jackie Chan action movie, the story moves through like the famous opening scene of Police Story, right? Mm. That's sort of like an entire scene being told, like an entire introduction being told through action. Uh, yeah. Whereas whereas in, in this, it feels like, okay, we have drama. There is something that leads these actors to fight, no doubt about that. But then, sort of, they have their fight, and then they kind of then the drama resumes. And it's not, it's not that's not always exclusive. For instance, the the fight between the bamboo fight between um, Jen, Li Mu Bai, yes, yes, Li Mu Bai, where he is kind of standing and he's clearly sort of trying to uh, aggravate her and trying to sort of like get a rise out of her. So that's, I mean, that's an example where I think story the, the action is done good. It's done in a matter where it does actually advance the story and it does actually sort of have the characters interact in a way that moves the story forward. And that's actually a very, you mentioned humor. That's, I think, an excellent example of Ang Lee using humor throughout the, in the action and throughout the film here, because him standing at the edge of the, uh, of the, of the tree is, is, is hilarious. But yeah, like those fights between Jen and Lee Mubai. Uh, uh, like examples of where the action and the drama are really um, perfectly intermarried. There'll be a sl- there'll be a pause, but you can see that they're both testing each other, and um, he's as you said, he's trying to get a rise out of it. Yeah, but for example, the sword fight between Michelle Yeoh and and Jen and uh, Zhang Zi characters. That's I think that's one example where the, the 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 story just pauses and they have an almost an exhibition match. Yeah, uh, but there's also that moment where, um, Michelle Yeoh's character, Yushu Lian, she's like, uh, that's Li Mubai's sword. And you can see it's like the, yeah, yeah, of course. It's, it's, again, it's, it's a minor, there, it's minor. There, there are, you know, there are moments where the characters kind of do, do, do shine through. So that's right. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's not as clear cut as drama comes to a stop and then boom, action and then resume. Yes, I think I, there's a good intermingling of the two. There, there is, there is, and and like I said, it's not by any means something that ruins the movie, like for example, in other, when a, in in a way that a lesser movie would have done. But it is, I think, to a certain degree, it is there, and it's not as well as it could have been done. It's not as well as perhaps as what we often see in Jackie Chan movies, where he kind of m- melds story and action very seamlessly. 
Yeah. Okay, so so we we were talking about the characters, and I think there's we can talk about you know what the title means. You know, like who is the crouching tiger and who is the hidden dragon in here? Is it is it Li Mu Bai? Is it uh, Yu Shu Lian? Is it Jen? Is it the Jade Fox? So, um, so hidden dragon. Um, Li Mu Bai makes a reference to Jen being a poison dragon uh, under Jade Fox, worrying about the negative influence. Um, but I've also read that the uh, sort of uh, the uh, I was going to say Kanji. I think it's Hanzi, the sort of traditional Chinese um, character for Jen's name contains dragon in it. Yeah. And, uh, but it could also be a reference for like, um, hidden passions as well. Yeah. I think initially I took it as, you know, like, uh, hidden talents. Like, Jen looks like sort of your typical aristocratic daughter that's about to marry off some, some accountant whom we never, I don't think we ever see, do we? Yeah. We, I think we do see him and he's like your stereotypical sort of, uh, he's, um, uh, a portly fellow. Big grin on his face, adorned in fine clothes, and then dark clouds uh, disrupts the wedding procession. And you know, dark clouds dressed as much more handsome because he's Chang Chen, and um, yes, and uh, he's much more dashing, and he's able to jump across rooftops. Although I don't think that haircut suits him very well. I'm not gonna lie. I don't, he's a Western. He's he's a barbarian from the Western deserts. He needs he needs something to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's right. That's right. Perfect for the story. I'm just saying, as a person, I don't. I'm not sure that suits him. But okay, okay. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Jen, like Jen's introduction, her skills are hidden. Like she's presented um, a painting calligraphy. She's submissive to the people around her, uh, but beneath that sort of um, exterior, it beats the heart of a martial arts genius and um, someone who. As the film goes on, you see that she should not be in arranged marriage. Um, like the gender uh, restrictions that would be placed upon her are uh, like unfair, and um, it also plays into the notion that she wants to join the world of Li Mubai and um, uh, Yu Shu Lian and be a, a wandering warrior. So, do you? Uh, and I think this is going to tie to the end a little bit because there are, I think, two things to consider here. For one thing, we have Michelle Yeoh telling her multiple times that her life is not as glamorous as she th- as it looks from the outside. And of course, we see we can kind of see why. And of course, in many ways, it's a self-imposed restriction, some kind of you know, which is again a typical sort of like soap opera slash wusha uh, restriction where they have to honor the memory of. I don't know who whoever died many years ago. Yeah, her husband. That's right. Well, her her fiance. I don't think they were actually married. Although I don't I don't remember. But yeah, it's kind of like uh, you've there are in the martial arts world. You've got these tenets like uh, justice, individualism, courage, loyalty, and you and or, and Confucianism as well. And uh, these are things that the older characters have stuck to and the younger characters, the wild the wild adventure of Dark Cloud from the West and um Jen, the the aristocratic daughter who who who's got so many talents, she doesn't want to submit to those. Yes. Well so that's that's sort of kinda of what what I'm saying is that there's on the one hand, Jen is faced with sort of con- the Confucianism tradition where she has to behave in a certain way and she has to follow a certain life path that is kind of like already set up for her. And she obviously wants to escape her. But do you think maybe she, when she makes the decision to jump, is because she realized that the other choice, the choice of 
being Michelle Yeoh. Well, and then there's the third choice, perhaps being Jade Fox. And I think I think Jade Fox is we can obviously rule that out and sort of she sees why she doesn't win to be that. But then the other viable choice is being Michelle Yeoh. But then she sees that being Michelle Yeoh's li- life is maybe also not what what she initially thinks it is. So maybe do you think there is something there where she realizes she kind of believes Michelle Yeoh in the end that no, my life is not something that you should try to emulate either. I t- like that seems difficult one to read it's because it's ambiguous and um i just felt like it was a selfish choice um it was just like she because i came to really like Li Mubai and yu shulian's characters i uh, i looked at um jen's action of throwing herself off the mountain or jumping as like a selfish act to like escape or at the very least atone for like she realized um what she had cost these two older characters and um Maybe she decided to to atone to it, to atone for it, or she didn't want to face it. But in the book, um, in the book series, uh, it appears that she carries on living, and she actually gives birth to Dark Cloud's child. Okay, well that's something. I, you know, there's always a chance that the reason the movie ends it the way it does is just simply because Ang Lee liked the imagery of a woman falling through the clouds, uh, and there's really no. <laughs> No deeper meaning other than that, but I guess suppose that we have no choice but to try to understand it at a different level. Yeah, it could just be uh, an outhouse styling, but he wanted that ending, uh, and maybe he felt like it would please uh, a large uh, segment of the audience. Yeah, I think. I think. I mean, I can see it sort of from a metatextual level that after everything that happens, after everything that she does, after because she's selfish throughout most of the movie. Yeah. Uh, it's it's it would seem disingenuous to kind of give her a happy ending, even though like we have the whole thing, like we said about Michelle Yeoh forgives her and she does eventually learn her lessons. It, it it would seem like, you know, from a writing point of view, it just didn't the 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 good the happy ending was not earned. Uh, well, like maybe a, m- a more appropriate ending was would be she becomes a nun and um, she spends her time. Um, trying to seek enlightenment, but that, like, f- in terms of movies, like, that's just not romantic. Yeah, of course. But so, but then, kind of going the other way, if you know, why did she wish? Assuming, assuming the sort of the fantasy is true, and like falling from the mountain does truly grant you a wish. Why did she wish to go back to the desert? Is it a realization that? Um, she- because of her background as an aristocrat's daughter, because uh, uh, she's a woman, um, she's going to have all these um, uh, restrictions placed upon her, maybe. What about, I mean, they can still go to the desert now. Like I said that before, you know, like they can just, you know, take a horse. They're now there. Nobody knows that they're there except the one person that knows that there is dead and the other, Michelle Yeoh, probably she won't tell anybody. Yeah, it's it's a waste of a life, essentially. It, and it's It's in keeping with her it's in keeping with her impetuous nature, I suppose. Uh, I, I, one other theory that this is very, you know, un, un, unprocessed, but it is perhaps it's not just a matter of space. Where can they be, like the desert versus the the civilized life? But it's also a matter of time that she doesn't just want to go back to the desert as a place. She also wants to go to, back to the time of her life that she was when she was in a desert. Without sort of like the knowledge of everything that she knows now, because I think part of it is again going back to Michelle Yeoh, sort of like this sort of notion of doom romance. Because at the time she was young and she actually believed 
that uh, that a life with uh, a dark cloud was possible through this sort of like young and adventurous lifestyle. But now perhaps she knows that that kind of life is impossible because no matter what, society will always catch up to them. One of the things actually, well, perhaps the thing that prompts her to go back to civilization after the desert is Dark Cloud saying, uh, look, are you sure about this? Your parents are still out there. And it reminds her that she's from a highborn status and like their relationship uh, is not possible and that her parents are still looking for her. Um, so another another thing that that we can sort of bring up about the film about sort of like this that is ties up to the status is sort of the gender roles. And obviously, I mean, the, I think the movie makes no no qualms about obviously the the role of women, maybe men to some degree too, but primarily the role of women in sort of like this type of Chinese society, which I don't know how much of a thing it was in China or in Taiwan when Ang Lee was making of a movie, but it's you know still a very I think a very relatable relatable concept to everyone in the world, especially the West. And I think Ang Lee said that he was making the movie primarily with Western viewers in mind, but. Um, uh, but the the one thing that kind of rubbed me the wrong way is that I feel like the movie is taking credit for something that it's not the first to do, uh, because I think there are many examples in Hong Kong cinema where we do have not only movies about women, but also movies by women. And Michelle Yeoh in Supercop is definitely one of them. She's not the protagonist in that one, but she's definitely like the secondary role following up with Jackie Chan and, you know, really being imp- really impressive in that movie. Yeah, it's like, I, it's kind of like um, you've got like... Cheng Pei Pei, who plays Jade Fox, she was a big action star herself. Exactly, um, yeah. You've got Angela Mao and um, Yukari Oshima, Moon Lee, Cynthia Rothrock. If you go to the 60s, 70s, 80s, um, the 80s these... and 90s, especially. I mean, we, we, yeah. sorry to interrupt you, but we brought up, like, when we were talking about, uh, who were we talking about when we broke up, when we brought this up? Uh, School on Fire by, uh, the the Hong Kong director that died recently, Ringo Lam. Ringo, Ringo Lam. Yeah, School on Fire. I mean, that's a that's a very not. It's an action movie, not a necessarily a martial arts movie, but it's an action movie very aware about sort of like the issues of the time, especially directed yeah. uh, like to, towards the uh, women of in 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 Hong Kong at the time, and maybe China too. I don't know. So there, yeah. So again, to add to just what you're saying, it's this is by no means the first that kind of deals the the, the kind of deal. This. So I don't know that it necessarily deserves credit for kind of like introducing or even advancing this issue but it, it deserves credit for actually being a very excellent giving excellent treatment of the issue yeah it, it actually makes it text because the characters do talk about gender roles quite openly and um i i it makes me like it makes me wonder like um western cinema um were there any great female action heroes uh no perhaps i don't think maybe not as uh not as many as in asia not as many as in Hong Kong cinema or Japanese cinema. Yes, but even in in Hong Kong and Japanese action cinema, it's still mostly it was mostly mostly a male dominated uh, type set. But you did see very well depicted action action uh, female stars. Yeah, there were whole genres dedicated to women because well, there's a profit motive behind it, but also like the, so many great female performers were trained and given the space to do what they could do. Yeah. Well, I mean, in Hollywood, you do you do have the occasional one, like Alien, like um, um, Terminator. G.I. Jane. G.I. Jane. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like the odd one. And uh, it's like... Uh, I'm, I'm just sure there are a few others, but yeah, they're f- far and few between. Few and far between. 
Yeah, just as sort of Ang Lee introduces Wuja to a sort of more mainstream audience, he introduces the sort of like uh, fact that Asian cinema has uh, a place for uh, female action stars, and um, this comes from the fact that like in Wuja, um, in Asian folk history, you've got uh, many uh, female warriors. So like the 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 originator of um, Wing Chun was a, a, a nun, a Buddhist nun. Yes, that's right. So, you know, it's, it seems to be much more acceptable in Eastern cinema than it is in Western cinema. Oh, absolutely. Which is not, yeah. which is not to say that Eastern cinema isn't chauvinistic in its own way. Um, so Cheng Pei Pei has said that working on Golden Swallow with, um, I think the director's name is Cheng Cage was really tough because he was very, um, macho and he was like, uh, female performers shouldn't be jumping through windows. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it is a, a like, you know, a, many countries in Asia still are, I mean, we've talked about this when we talked about Japan. They're still very patriarchal countries, but there, in terms of the cinema, there certainly have. There's a long history of very good, especially in the action genre, very good female protagonists that have kind of and movies about female issues as well. Absolutely, it's kind of like um, the discussion over the last sort of like five years, or like the advancement of. Um female action heroes totally leaves out the fact that for the last 40, 50 years, Asia's been producing so many of them. It just shows how Western-centric our media is. Absolutely. And so that's, again, precisely, and that's kind of my point with Crouching Tiger, Hit Dragon. It's a, it, that it, it treats the subject well, but it's, I don't think it should get credit for sort of like, like inventing anything new, at least in that regard, because it's just following the footsteps of, of a well-established tradition. Now, maybe Ang Lee, I, I doubt this is true, but maybe he wasn't that avid of, a, of an Asian cinema watcher uh, since he came from the West, sort of. Well, he grew up in Taiwan and then he moved to America when he was 23. And he said like, uh, he, like Wu Xia was a part of like, his experience growing up and yeah. he always wanted to make a Wuxia movie. He talked about making Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon back in 1991 when he was making Pushing Hands. Okay, so a very, very serious question. So do you think, uh, so again, I'm sort of, I'm, what fits and what doesn't fit in a genre? I think it's, it's, it's a very fascinating question for me, even though some people couldn't care less about it. But do you think Big Trouble in Little China could classify as a Wuxia film? <laughs> I was thinking about that the other day. Like, what films had Western audiences seen that could qualify as Wuja genres? Uh, as Wuja genre? Um, because, and, and I'm asking just before you answer, the, John Carpenter is has around the time has given an interviews where he says, "I always wanted to make martial arts movies." So for him, it was martial arts movies. But at the time that he was probably watching martial arts movies, prim- mostly we can assume Hong Kong martial art movies or maybe a Japanese too I don't know or it could be Taiwanese as well because it was big in Taiwan could be Taiwanese you're right but my point is that of course Bruce Lee was big at the time in the 70s so that he could also be that could be his inspiration but the uh, Wuja was still very popular at the time it, I think it was in the 80s where you know Jackie Chan generations sort of like depopularized and make this more like stunt based hard hitting action Kung Fu Kung Fu martial arts popular but Wu Zhao at the time in the 70s, where most likely Carpenter was watching, Wu Zhao was might have been what he was what he was thinking when he says when he says, I always wanted to make a martial arts movie, and of course he made Big Trouble in Little China. So do you what what do you, what's your answer? What do you think about it as it's uh, in terms of its classification? Yeah, I would say it's a Wu Zhao movie. 
right? It fits in there because you've got martial arts masters with um, crazy powers. Some acrobatics. Yeah. But if you listen to like um, Wu-Tang Clan, they've got um, excerpts from Wuxia movies in their albums, like um, 36 Chambers. So, you know, like even the most outlandish movies were making their way westwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. There was a, there was a very thriving underground in the 80s, it was through the bootleg videotapes, but in the 70s, it was through the uh, sort of like dedicated theaters, like the small, uh, you know, like Asian-owned theaters that showed yeah. sort of martial arts movies that would, you know, there was a, it was a viable business. Obviously, yeah. it wouldn't have the following of, you know, like what we call today blockbusters, but it was, a, it was a viable business that people could have at the time. So there was definitely this following of martial arts movies. Yeah. But yeah, I, I would agree with you that um, I think, I think, uh, Big Trouble in Little China is uh, uh, it who should classify as a wuja film because the fantasy is there, the the wires, the acrobatics are there. Maybe the melodrama is not there so much, but I don't know. Maybe it is because there's this the, the the plot line of the a woman with a green eyes. Like is that that's a big? It's been a while since I've seen it, uh, but there's a you know they're looking. Everybody's looking for for an Asian woman with green with green eyes, right? That that feels like a very like wuja type of type of contrivance mm. now now i'm thinking uh golden child of eddie murphy <laughs> it's been a while since i'd seen that oh it's been a while since i've seen that too yeah now i'm gonna have to watch it just to see if there's any martial arts in it or not <laughs> but it definitely has um sort of like stereotypical eastern mysticism to it all right so last time when we did parasite and parasite is known i don't i mean i think it broke it did surpass crouching tiger hidden dragon in terms of box office didn't it Mm, uh, I, uh, I can't say for sure. I think it did, but anyway. But so I last time I asked you why Parasite. So why did this so popular? I asked you in a yeah. in a world where super the most popular movies are Men in Tights, uh, superhero movies. Why Parasite became so popular? And I'm sort of I'm asking I'm going to ask the same question this week about uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Sort of like this very you know Asian movie. Not nothing. There's nothing. Nothing bad about that, of course, but I'm just saying in terms of how the West perceives these kinds of movies, they've never been that that kind of sort of material that generates this kind of income. Yet to everyone's surprise, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon broke, broke several box office records and, you know, award records, uh, surprising everyone. And so why, why did it happen? Do you think it had to do anything with Ang Lee being a Western director and knowing how to market things to the West, or was there something else? Uh, I think there's something to that because when they were making the trailer for, um, or when they released the trailer, the trailer they released for Crouch Tiger Hidden Dragon apparently had no dialogue. So nobody knew it was going to be a subtitle movie done totally in Mandarin. And, uh, they perceived it as being something, uh, uh, of a, uh, possible art house hit because it's a foreign film because of Ang Lee's previous works. And, uh, it, I suppose you could say it won over the outhouse crowd and mainstream audiences by introducing Wuja to people who may not be have been aware of the genre by making it appealing with um, romance and sort of beautiful imagery uh, like the Mongolian steppes and the Gobi deserts and strong female characters and a, and a nice soundtrack too. Yeah, great soundtrack and yeah, like strong female characters as we were talking about earlier, like female action stars. In Western films, um, aren't as plentiful, and then you've got Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, giving them center stage. 
So you've got audiences who may be more familiar with like Jackie Chan's Kung Fu, seeing something more fantastical with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, something um, they might feel is more beautiful. Well, I mean that's that's the thing because again, I'm trying to I'm trying to generalize an, an American like an imaginary American audience that doesn't really exist, especially today, but perhaps it exists a little bit more in in the 2000s about you know what people like and what people don't like, uh, and I see. You know, in in an audience that perhaps was trained to to see Asian movies through the lens of Jackie Chan, I also don't see that directly leading to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Although maybe because I don't think any of Jackie Chan's uh, like Hong Kong movies had that kind of impact in in the U.S. I don't think any of them received that kind of wide theatrical release. Uh, although I think Rush Hour was already out by this time, ninety seven, right? 9798. Yeah. So maybe that that was that did it. I like it's so different that I, I I can't necessarily see how. And I don't think, you know, the the uh, having a a woman in the lead role is of course historically important, but I don't think that necessarily can can justify the the box office success. Although I don't know, maybe, who knows. I think it's just a combination of like all of these elements appealing to the widest possible audience who may uh, have never experienced these things, and like the buzz from critics and uh, award ceremonies coming together. I think that I think that's true, and I think you know, Ang Lee saying that he specifically made the movie with a Western audience in mind is perhaps you know, like like you said, and I've mentioned a few times, this is not as sort of exa- the exaggeration, or not as big as in some other Wuxia films. Mm. And I think sort of like that perhaps is to the benefit of, of a Western audience to kind of like soft their transition. I'm sure there would have been the snobs out there that kind of the kind of people that went into these Chinese theaters that we mentioned who saw <laughs> Crouching Tiger and said, oh, that's nothing. You got to watch this and this and that. <laughs> yeah. But I think I think him was probably that I think that might have been I, I mean, I don't know, but I'm speculating that that might have been what ultimately did it. Yeah, he was able to find sort of harmony between sort of like um, the Bouja, um trappings, um, storylines, and inserting enough um, from Western cinema, such as like uh, going in depth with uh, acting and romance, and making it uh, as obvious as possible um, to appeal to as many people as he could. All right. Uh, so, anything else about sort of like the plot uh, or the characters of uh, Crouching Tiger that? you you kind of want to discuss um yeah it's interesting like um how the cast are drawn from across the asian diaspora you've got cherry and fat who's from hong kong you've got michelle yo who's from malaysia and then you've got um chang chen who's from taiwan and ang lee's also from taiwan and you've got um shang ji who's from mainland china and it's interesting that uh they all had sweet mandarin adding like some of the notes i've read it's um like the accents uh don't match up. So like as a Western viewer, we're getting like we think we're getting something um authentic, but Chinese viewers are like, oh, hold on a second, <laughs> this doesn't sound right. And it's like it's like uh it's insane how I mean I don't know, like my my I can only speak for the Chinese people that I've that I've talked to about this, but they've told me I've I've seen pe- cases where a movie can be ruined if the accents don't match up. Mm. It's like, you know, okay. Like I've I had someone not 
kind of enjoy a movie because an actor that's supposed to a character that's supposed to be from the south speaks with a northern accent and that almost kind of ruins movies for people and it's like it's insane like the sort of level of disconnect that kind of happens and yeah western audiences aren't even away exactly yeah and you know, it obviously i don't care i mean it's like a fantastic movie for me can just be a like a mediocre movie for a chinese viewer purely because of like technical errors technical not errors but technical reasons like that and of course again ang lee probably didn't care because he was uh he was interested in in uh in attracting western audience so maybe it worked for this movie but maybe some other chinese movies have a tougher time being accepted by the local uh, audience yeah did you when the not not the jade fox but when the like the zhang zi's character steals the sword for the first time and she's masked did you for a second even the first time not uh think that that was jen oh uh, i can't remember my first time viewing but because i knew uh, because i'd watched it before um i knew it was jen yeah so. I, w- I wasn't sure if the movie's trying to actually like like throw a twist there because i don't i, I can't think i don't think I, I think it was obvious to me the first time yeah, like you can sort of see from her face. Like out of all the characters there, she's the only one with that smooth of a face, with that youthful yeah, of a face. There's so many close-ups of her. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, it's this. Uh, I don't know if you've seen, but it's actually got a PlayStation Two Xbox uh, video game adaptation. I saw the, I saw the 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 link, the review that you linked up looked terrible. Yeah, it's a brawler, and um, it's like hard to fight <laughs> in the game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure they just try to go off with the, uh, the popularity of the movie. I don't think I, I can't, I can't imagine they did a decent job. Yeah, it's also received like um, uh, uh, a sequel as well, directed by Yu Mu Ping, Sword of Destiny. Okay, what, what year have you, have you seen, have you seen it? I haven't seen it. No, but a 2016 film. Oh, okay, so quite recent, yeah. Yeah. Does it start any of the same actors? So you've got Michelle Yeoh in it. Oh. But it's also got um, Donnie Yen. Okay. And that's, those are the only two I recognize. Okay. But I forget when Star Trek came out, when this Star Trek Discovery came out. She had a, like, a, a relatively important role in the pilot. Mm, yeah, she's a recurring character, isn't she? Well, she, it's, it's, it's kind of, I mean, it's, I, I don't want to talk about the mess that modern Star Trek is, uh, but out of that <laughs> of that series, she was one of the better. Although I don't think they utilized her in in a in a in the best way possible that they could. But hmm. she's an interesting character. They she dies, and they sort of uh, they they figure out a way to bring her back. And I think the, the new version of her that they bring back is not as good. Uh, she essentially plays this sort of like overly telegraphing villain. Not exactly villain, but evil, sort of ambiguously evil person, and she's not as good. But either way, like it seems after that, like when she after the pilot, it seems like sort of like her career in the West kind of exploded. Uh, it seems like she's kind of been gotten so many big roles, like from Crazy Rich Asians to obviously the new movie that mentioned this year, Everything Everywhere and whatever. Yeah, uh, uh, all that, and a bunch of other ones, and looks like also like in Asia, she's kind of had a, like a small resurgence as well in China and, and Hong Kong. Yeah, mostly China, I think. She's also in a small uh, indie sci-fi. I think it's small indie sci-fi, Sunshine. Oh, with uh, Daddy Boyle. Yes. Yeah, I remember. That's a, that's actually Killian Murphy. Yeah, that's actually. I think that's. I don't think that movie was received very well, but I enjoyed that movie. 
Yeah, and Michelle Yeoh is also appearing in Avatar 5 and 4 and 3. And yeah, the next one, the next Avatar. Yeah, it seems after that Star Trek uh, appearance, she, her career just kind of exploded. And it's, she's, she's in everything now. And she's kind of having like a second golden age. Yeah. Uh, which is good for her. I mean, I, thought, I always thought she was a great actress. And a great, yeah. too, too bad, you know, she can't do martial arts now. But she was a great martial artist as well. Yeah, like, uh, would like to see her uh, in Royal Warriors uh, and Heroic Trio movies and Wing Chun. Those are really great films to recommend to people. Yes. All right. So now, of course, it's the million, do- the million dollar question, the one that we ask, that we're going to ask in the end of every episode this season. Do you think this movie deserved the awards that it got? Uh, it's like, uh, in terms of what was released in 2000s, you had In the Mood for Love, and, uh, that didn't win half as many, uh, awards as it possibly should have. I don't know. I need to watch that film again. Uh, and in a Western context, it was up against, um, Gladiator by Ridley Scott, uh, which is a fine movie. So, uh, okay. Um, it was also a traffic was also the same year I think by okay. uh, uh, Paul Haggis. No, no, that was by um, I don't think that was Paul Haggis. Although he may have been a writer, I don't know. But no, the director was uh, Steven Soderbergh. Oh, traffic, traffic, Steven Soderbergh. Or was that the year later? Oh, okay. Is that the drug cartel? Yes, one? yes, yes. I, okay, I don't remember yeah, the, yeah, yeah. if that was the same year or the year afterwards. Yeah, same year, two thousand. Okay, yeah. So that, that's, I mean, that's a, also a great movie. Yeah, that is a great movie, actually. So, uh, did it? Does it? Yeah, yeah. And we'll say yes because it's a very well-made movie. Um, it introduced uh, Wuja to a wider audience, um, sparked perhaps a renaissance in the West uh, for the genre, and um, it's led to uh, the building of Michelle Yeoh's career. And um, it's good to see her more things. So, yes, it deserved those awards. So I'm I'm going to throw a curveball at you, and I'm going to say that he deserved the recognition, but I don't think he deserved the awards. Oh, uh, who deserved the awards? So, then? okay, no, the, there's no way that this is better than In the Mood for Love. That just, I mean, that's a that's Wong Kar Wai's masterpiece. It still stands up. It's a fantastic movie. It's of course we're not comparing apples to apples here. It's apples to oranges. They're very different movies. Of course, they're both romances. So I guess they you could compare along that end. But it's just in the mood for love is just so much su- such a such a great fantastic movie, and I think that deserved to win, you know, like in the categories that that it was competing directly with Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, like in the Hong Kong Film Awards, which are the equivalent Oscars. Uh, yeah, any others? Uh, it's it's a shame to me that in the mood for love wasn't even even nominated for an Oscar. It was nominated for some other. I think it was nominated for BAFTA, uh, mm-hmm. and it won it won at Cannes, of course big there but it is it is you know it wasn't it was not nominated for a for an oscar i don't think it was even submitted i'm not sure so that's i mean that it should have and it should have actually won the oscar the best foreign language it was i think the best foreign film that year and also another great asian film that year that i know you didn't like as much as i did but i I also considered a masterpiece was devils in the doorstep Okay, okay. The chinese film which i also don't think that did very well in the awards that year probably because of censorship yeah, I don't. I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't want to speculate, but um, but yeah. So in terms of Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I think 
in terms of you know what it was nominated against at the Oscars, I don't think it was better than Gladi- Gladiator. I don't think it was better than Traffic. But in the foreign category, yes, it was the better one. I, Amores Peros, I've seen that one. It's okay. It's not. It's not that great. There's a few others that I'm seeing that I don't necessarily recognize, probably for good reasons. So in in what was nominated against in the foreign category, maybe it deserved to win that one. But the fact that In the Mood for Love and Devils on the Doorstep did not cut did not cut it for the nomination that year. I thought it was just it just had it, the Crouching Tiger had it easy. In in terms of Hong Kong films, uh, it was competing against um, In the Mood for Love, um, Time and Tide. So, uh, these are two really good films, and I think I would agree with you. In the Mood for Love is a superior film. Yes, that again, I I do think that it deserves the recognition that it's gotten because the movie has a lot of recognition. I I don't know if you've sort of experienced this as I have, but I've I've known people who who don't watch foreign films, who don't watch Asian films, but they still either know about or have seen Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, it introduced so many people to like a new genre. Yeah, and I think you know, like House of Flying da- Daggers had a like a decent Western success, and Hero. Uh, starring Jet Li, that also had pretty good Western success, and I think that does not happen without Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yeah. and a lot of, a lot of, you know, it did a lot of good for Asian cinema. So there's no doubt about that. So I think the recognition that it deserves, it deserves it wholeheartedly. But the awards, it was not the better film that year, the best film that year, and I think, I think it perhaps got them a little bit unfairly. But it's also not the kind of thing that it's should make one mad because it was still a pretty good movie, maybe not the best movie of the year, but still pretty good. Absolutely. All right. So uh, anything else about the film that we did not discuss that you feel we should uh, mention before we close the episode? I know. I think that's uh, a good way to end the discussion. All right. Yeah. So great film. We recommend it. Definitely stands up. I think it, my, my, my rigorous test of, of heavy scrutiny is passed here. Uh, of course, uh, I, I think I'm, you know, I'm, I mean, in the, in the divorce trial, the, the kids are going to say that I was the, the harshest parent and you're, <laughs> and you're the lenient parent who lets them go on trips with their boyfriends and girlfriends, but it's okay. I don't mind. They'll thank me later, uh, but I will, I'm, I'm happy that I'm putting these, uh, uh, through, through the, the harshest scrutiny that I can, you know, also giving credit when it's credit due, when, when the credit is due, of course, but I do think that all the films that we've talked so far do sort of stand up. Uh, hey man, that's just your opinion. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, okay. All right. So I think that's, that's it for this week. Uh, that was our episode on Ang Lee's Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. I hope you enjoyed it. So next, uh, next episode, which it's going to be in about two weeks as usual, uh, it's going to be a, 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 about uh, Zhang Yimou's Raise the Red Lantern. So that's going to be an exciting discussion. Until then, uh, oh, Jason, do you have anything to close with? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you uh, for the interesting discussion. And I'd like to thank the audience for listening if they made it this far. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so I think that's it for the episode. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, please, please, to, to contact us on our website heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com or reach us through twitter at heroic uh, purgatory all in one word uh otherwise we'll see you next time <laughs>